Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Guerra, and in today's show, we're looking at markets and industries currently underserved by financial services. So the World Bank considers financial inclusion to be a key enabler in reducing extreme poverty and boosting shared prosperity. But that requires offering inclusion to those who have historically been excluded. While fintech has made great strides in democratizing access to financial services for many, there are industries and real people who still remain frozen out. With that in mind, we're focusing today's conversation on three different underserved groups and industries, the sex industry, the cannabis industry, and new migrants. We'll dive into what barriers historically exist to accessing financial services, what solutions are available now, and what does the future look like for those left behind by traditional banking. Let's get started. As always, I'm not alone. I'm joined by a panel of amazing guests who can shed some light on this topic. So making their FinTech Insider debut, we've got Rosie Hudson, Executive Assistant of Marketing and Communications at National Ugly Mugs. We're going to go into some more detail about some research from your organization, uh, but welcome to the show. Uh, can you give our listeners a, a short introduction uh, to our National Ugly Mugs? Of course. Um, hi. So National Ugly Mugs is a UK-wide organisation and we have the mission of ending all forms of violence against sex workers. This originally started as meaning interpersonal violence, so one-on-one crimes, harms, violence perpetrated by clients or by anyone else who sex workers might encounter. But we've expanded this a lot more recently to look at things like structural violence and the sort of systems and power structures that keep sex workers excluded from society more broadly. So we exist to provide safety mechanisms and solutions for sex workers who may encounter these sorts of barriers as part of their work or as a result of the work that they do. Awesome. Thank you. Also making their FinTech Insider debut, we're joined by Mike Kennedy, the co-founder and chief strategy officer at Green Check Verified. Thank you for joining us, Mike. What should our audiences know about Green Check Verified and, and where you currently operate? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Green Check offers a marketplace uh, platform for cannabis businesses here in the U.S. to gain access to financial services. Uh, it being federally illegal uh, and only legal at the, the state level in, in most, but not all states, Around uh, America, it's very difficult for these cannabis businesses, dispensaries, cultivators, processors, even uh, delivery companies to obtain even the most basic financial services because the way that our federal banking system works. So we offer technology that helps connect financial service providers to these cannabis businesses and then uh, automates the compliance overhead associated with those such activities to create uh, lower costs and easier barriers to entry. Great. Thank you. Welcome. And last but absolutely not least, another FinTech Insider debut from Rohit Mittal, the co-founder and CEO of Stilt. Welcome, Rohit. Please, can you give us a brief introduction to Stilt? Yeah, thanks for having me, Guerra. Uh, Stilt is a FinTech company based in San Francisco. We focus primarily on immigrants and provide them financial products like unsecured personal loans and such. Uh, our whole insight is that when immigrants move to a new country, they generally lack a financial identity. They lack credit scores and credit histories because of which they find it extremely difficult to access uh, traditional financial products. So still steps in and offers them unsecured personal loans on day one of their arrival, even if they don't have all the necessary things that other traditional financial institutions ask for. Um, we've been doing it for the past five plus years now and have raised uh, $375 million in equity and debt and have uh, grown the company to 35 employees, serving immigrants from 160 different countries. 
um, and currently expanding our products to serve uh, more immigrants and, and other industries. That's great. Thank you. Really good to have you here. So let's let's dive in. So, um, okay, let's start with looking at how things have worked historically for underserved communities. So um, if we if we're to define what it means to be underserved from a banking perspective, I, I, I'd define that as folks in industries who have struggled or completely been shut out from accessing simple uh, financial services like loans, um, you know, debit cards, uh, bank accounts, um, you know, something as simple as, as even like a checkbook, you know, if we're talking about the 90s. <laughs> um, but I, 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 like, it's a pretty broad group of people and, and industries. Um, but I'll, I'll start with Rosie. So Rosie, your organization put together a whole research paper titled Sex Workers Experience of Banking Discrimination. So can you give us a, a brief overview of that paper and, and some of the key findings you, you surfaced in that? Of course. So first of all, to start with, um, I cannot take any credit for the paper itself. Um, I want to give a huge shout out to Tess Herman and Scarlett Redman, who were instrumental in putting this entire paper together. And this is me basically putting forward their words on this. So what we found out, and this was something that we were seeing a lot more of increasingly amongst the sex work community, is that sex workers were having increasingly difficult times accessing financial products. So this was anything from bank accounts, business loans, overdrafts, mortgages, um, having their accounts shut down, those sorts of things. So what we wanted to do is we wanted to document this and we wanted to see what the scale of this problem was. And what we encountered wasn't necessarily new information for us. But what it did show is that there is a widespread problem when it comes to sex workers being denied access to financial products that many of us would take for granted on an everyday basis. This would be things like accounts being closed, their money being seized, um, services such as business banking, loans, overdrafts or mortgages being refused. Things like having a business account can be an absolutely vital tool for anonymity for sex workers because it prevents people needing to give clients or colleagues real names and it helps them to deal with things like tax returns as well. Even personal bank accounts had been frozen or shut down because people had been receiving payment from platforms that were known to host adult content, so adult work or OnlyFans, or simply because of it being called suspicious activity. None of the money that was seized as part of this was seized permanently, but many sex workers lost access to their accounts for months and therefore couldn't access their money for months. That sounds absolutely brutal. I mean, you know, like you said, it's, it wasn't seized permanently. That just is incredibly disruptive to someone's life. Can you give us some insight into like, what is the precedent for that? Like, what what is the legal status for sex workers in the UK? Because um, you can speak to the UK, but yeah, wh why why does this happen to them? So it's a little bit complicated. In terms of the legal status, in almost every part of the UK, buying and selling sex is legal. In Northern Ireland, buying sex is illegal, but every other part of the UK has sex work as being a legal thing that consenting adults can take part in. There are some activities that surround this that are illegal, and these mostly target people who do sex work in person. So things like soliciting, or brothel keeping, or profiting from sex work as a third party. However, there is no real sort of legal basis for this. There's no real legal basis for these policies. 
And what we've actually done is we've collated some of the things that various banks have said when it comes to sex work. And much of it is down to moralizing. Some of them saying, we don't have an appetite for the adult industry, or we don't work with OnlyFans. Terms and conditions of various banks explicitly state that they will not offer their services to people engaged in adult industries. And NatWest, um, one of the sort of biggest banks in the UK, explicitly ties sex work to things like human trafficking, forced child labour, drugs, crime and money laundering. So these are discriminatory policies that are deliberate choices being made by financial institutions to exclude sex workers from their products. They're not the result of the law and they're not the result of misunderstanding or ignorance. They are the result of stigma against sex work. Thank you for laying that out and explaining. Um, Mike, I'm going to come to you and, and look at another industry uh, the cannabis industry. The cannabis industry is actually at a turning point in the States. You know, we're starting to see some changes. But can we start by laying out the historical issues that that, that have faced this industry? Sure, absolutely. So, um, you know, from a, a very broad sense, cannabis, uh, marijuana in particular, um, so excluding hemp, CBD, and other non-psychoactive uh, products derived from the marijuana plant, um, it is federally illegal. It is considered a controlled substance in the same category as illicit substances such as LSD and heroin, meaning um, in the eyes of the federal government, it contains no demonstrable medical benefits. Um, there's countless studies, um, even by the federal government, that suggest otherwise. However, um, given our state versus federal dichotomy, it's been a very slow transition, but one that, as you pointed out, is moving um, you know, towards more of a, a legalized state. That said, you know, Rosie, as you're explaining, you know, the, the situation that your stakeholders find themselves in, it, it does sound familiar, just given the the way that we're facing not just legal and, and regulatory issues, but societal issues, right? The stigma that goes along with these underserved industries, it becomes very easy for financial institutions that that have a, a path forward. There, there is a compliant way to, to service cannabis businesses. Um, there are several hundred uh banks and credit unions here in the U.S. that are serving the legal cannabis industry, about 100 of which are, are clients of ours. Um, but it's easy for these financial institutions to say uh, that they fear reputational risk, meaning that they see a, uh, a detriment to their overall business objectives if their community, their stakeholders, their potential or current customers were to glean that they are serving the cannabis industry. And that's you know, it, it's not a, a legal issue. It's not a regulatory issue. It, it's a, a personal or moral issue that management at the financial institution has made. And, you know, frankly, it's it's not only unfair to the cannabis industry, but it's also bad for business. You know, the irony of this is that, you know, like sex work, the cannabis industry is growing at a rapid clip. It's, you know, creating jobs, it's creating wealth and financial institutions that are forcing uh, these industries to, to wait on the sidelines are missing out on that opportunity. So, uh, we see this as a win-win for both sides, the underserved and the financial institutions themselves. So connecting the two parties uh, has been our driving mission. That's great. I think, like you said, there's a not only is it an opportunity to include people in the financial industry, it's also like a pretty insane profit-making opportunity, right? Like th these under this underserved community and and these underserved communities really are are uh, you know have a lot of people who who would like to be included and who would um, you know really propel businesses like yours. 
Rohit, I'm going to come to you. Um, so with new migrants and the work that you do at Stilt, how has it been difficult for folks to access financial services in the States? Uh, can you give us a little bit of an understanding of what the traditional barriers have been in the U.S., for example, to accessing loans as a newcomer? Sure. So I was a new migrant in the U.S. about 10 plus years ago. I moved to the U.S. as an international student at Columbia University. And it's interesting that even as you move here, go to good universities or come here for you know, full-time work, uh, as you go to banks to access any type of loan to set up a new life, that's when we're, that, at that time, you need the most help uh, financially to pay your rental deposit, to buy a car, to buy furniture, to set up a new life. Uh, you are not able to uh, do so because every bank starts with uh, your credit report or credit history as the um, as the first thing that they ask for. And when you're new to a country, you actually don't have that, uh, which means that banks are not able to, or banks just decline you uh, any type of uh, loan product, unsecured or secure. And it takes about uh, five to six years for you to build enough credit uh, history to get access to affordable and, and high quality unsecured credit products. And that's kind of a barrier for, for most folks because they are, they have to like start from scratch and slowly build their life, which results in them not getting the, the types of services that they need or the types of services that they uh, should get. Um, and, and people are able, most people are able to build uh, their lives over, over six years, but the, it just puts them back uh, compared to other populations. And, and that's what we saw at Stilt and, and realized that uh, most folks moving to the U.S., actually should deserve uh, access to these products and are actually not as risky. And the bank's policies are just over-regulated because of what happened in 2001 or after the financial crisis, it just increased requirements on the banks in terms of uh, what the types of things they need to provide quality credit uh, to customers. And they just continue to be over-regulated or uh, otherwise, banks just don't want to take the risk of lending to new folks without uh, in a financial identity. And, and that's that's the common challenge that's faced by everyone. Yeah, I think that that's a really great, uh, you know, out, outlining of, of the real world consequences. So, you know, with in, in the regards to migrants, um, new migrants, you know, they're held back, like you said, they're held back, you know, despite having... Uh, you know, similar opportunities to, you know, Americans. And Rosie, you mentioned uh, the personal impact that we've seen These are the, in terms of people not being able to get a mortgage. But I want to come to Mike real quick, uh, just to, to, before we wrap this, this section. Uh, can you give us a bit of an insight into what the real world consequences look like uh, of the financial barriers for uh, the cannabis industry? Sure, absolutely. I mean, it, it certainly um, financial impact is the most obvious. Imagine running a you know, oftentimes multi-million dollar business without access to a business checking account. You're running things through your personal account, or in a lot of cases, you're entirely unbanked. I mean, I've talked to dispensaries that were literally hoarding boxes of cash in offsite locations, not because they, you know, wanted to have it on hand, but because they, the only option was to store it. And they discovered that storing it on site, on premise, was leading to a, a rash of, of robberies. There's been violent crime. You know, people have lost their lives not because people are are trying to rob the dispensary of marijuana, but because that they suspect and and oftentimes are correct that 
uh, there's going to be a large amount of cash kept on site. So there's, um, you know, safety and security issues. There's financial issues. Um, you know, the even the, the simple act of paying your taxes. Uh, many states here in the U.S. have a penalty if you have to pay in cash. So to not be able to even conduct simple electronic transactions leads to uh, additional fees. And that uh, impacts the bottom line and affects your ability to provide service and value to your community as a, a cannabis business owner. That's uh, it's mind-blowing. I mean, hearing about you know, real life consequences and, and people losing their lives and people losing opportunities. It's, it's horrible. And, and, you know, all more, the more important that we should uh, take a closer look at including these communities. Let's move on uh, into the conversation a bit about, um, you know, now, now that we've looked at the historic barriers, let's look at solutions that exist today. So, like I said, FinTech has made leaps and bounds, really, in including various communities. Uh, Rohit, the work you do at Stilt as well, you know, it's really done a lot to, to support uh, new newcomers and migrants. Uh, so, Rohit, I'm going to come to you. What, what is the biggest, uh, the current pain points really today for, for those folks like you who are looking to start businesses that are helping address underserved markets? Yeah. Uh, starting a FinTech company, particularly in lending, is in you you'll have to uh, do a lot of brain damage over many years to be able to serve the market uh, uh, well enough there are a couple of uh, challenges first is uh, if you are trying to partner with existing institutions like banks it's just extremely time consuming it takes a long time to convince banks to work with you and then it's uh, extremely expensive uh, so if you want to start a company lending to uh, lending in all 50 states with through a bank sponsorship, you can look at anywhere uh, from uh, 12 months plus, uh, and like you need a 15 person team, and you need like millions of dollars right up front to even start a lending company. Uh, you can go state by state, uh, like we did, uh, but it again takes a long time, and you are not able to serve the, the whole market. Uh, so, because of the regulation uh, or the regulated nature of the financial industry, it's very difficult for uh, anyone to just start a fintech company. Uh, coincidentally, uh, Stilt is also trying to make that easier. We launched a product called Onbo, where the five years of infrastructure that we built to serve immigrants uh, and uh, to serve uh, just normal U.S. population ourselves, uh, anyone we are providing a way to for others to leverage that so they can build on top of us and get started in two two months instead of um, taking 12 months to work with a bank or going out on their own. Uh, but the the regulations are fairly complex on the financial side. The, the, uh, the regulations are also fairly strict on the financial side. Um, and uh, that just takes a long time for uh, uh, founders and and others to to get around and to build a company. Many times, uh, uh, regulators are also coming these companies and and asking them to be regulated the same way as or more as normal uh, other uh, banks and companies uh, serving U.S. populations. Which means that companies need to the compliance costs are very high, and companies need to always. Um, you know, be uh, compliant and, and the costs are just prohibitive for someone to start a company. And, and the last piece I'll just quickly mention is around debt capital, especially as you're lending. You need to convince someone to give you money to actually lend to this population. You, you don't have all the money yourselves. When we started, still, we, we started with $25,000 plus of our own savings lending to these immigrants. Uh, over time, we ended up raising $350 million in debt facilities, but it didn't 
came, it didn't come easy uh, to us. We first, you know, had to convince like some people to give us tens of thousands of dollars, including our friends. Some of them don't talk to us anymore. But uh, even though we didn't send the money because we were just calling them too much uh, to ask for money. Uh, but over time, we, we had to like slowly convince one person at a time to really prove that immigrants are lower risk uh, than, than others. So, so building a fintech company, particularly around lending, is like compliance, underwriting, debt capital, so on and so forth, which takes a long time uh, to build. I think, you know, at 11FS, we say a lot that fintech is 1% done. I would argue that like fintech regulation is 0.00001% done. So Mike, I'm going to, I'm coming to you. Like, it feels like the cannabis industry is, you know, with regards to regulation, um, it's at a massive turning point with a bill that's just passed the House of Representatives to end the federal ban on marijuana. Could you lay out what this means, like regulation and legislation like that at that level, what this means from a banking perspective? Yeah. So, um, not to be a pessimist, but it means nothing. Um, this isn't the first time that that bills like this. In fact, this exact bill has been passed already by the House. Unfortunately, the the Senate um, you know, fails to to conclude that effort. But regardless, the predominant theory is that legalization of of cannabis is a matter of when, not if. And when it is fully legalized, we're going to see a couple of things. One, uh, we're going to see more granular, more concrete regulation for providing financial services to this industry. So we saw the same thing in the U.S. here for uh, money service businesses um, as the legal framework was, was rolled out, um, you know, gambling, and now, you know, the, the uh, prevalence of online gambling, other cash-intensive businesses. There are frameworks that we can look to in the past that take things that are considered higher risk from a, a banking perspective and build a regulatory framework around them such that financial service providers know you know, what's in bounds, what's out of bounds when working with this industry. The second thing that's going to happen is you're going to see a lot of financial institutions try to rush to this market because like any business, if you can find a market segment that is untapped or, or underserved, um, that represents, a you know, a, an opportunity for you. And if there's a, uh, a set of guidelines you can follow in order to address this, then that would behoove most financial institutions. That said, the legacy thinking and, and um, you know, the historic persecution of these businesses by those very banks is going to make it difficult for someone like you know, Bank of America or Wells Fargo to tap into a, a largely grassroots industry that doesn't, um, you know, doesn't have a, a short-term memory problem. They, they recall um, very vividly being told no, being kicked out of their bank, uh, and being forced to, to run in a you know, a bankless environment. So I think it will change. Things will get better, but it will still become a challenge for any financial institution looking to work with the industry, lest they have the necessary controls in place to satisfy applicable regulations. Right. And, and I, you know, you kind of have to go through it, uh, in, in terms of regulation with regards to the cannabis industry. Uh, Rosie, I'm going to come to you about alternatives, ways of going around it, if you will. Uh, so what alternative financial solutions are currently being used by those in, you know, the sex work industry and like how, how big are sites like Only, OnlyFans, um, how big have they been in building financial avenues uh, for within the industry? There are a few different ways that sex workers have been getting around the issues caused by banks, but none of them are especially practical and none of them really do a whole lot to actually change the conditions that are stopping sex work from being able to access financial services in the first place. The main thing that people do individually if they do receive issues from banks or financial service providers is just 
quietly change. That's all, that's all they can do. Go to somewhere else until such time as that account is potentially shut down and they move elsewhere. This, again, is going to be very difficult for certain populations, um, people who might not have access to ID, um, trans people whose ID doesn't necessarily match their lived experience, migrants, the same issues that Rohit's talking about as well, people with no fixed address as well, groups that are overrepresented amongst the sex work community. There are some people who are actively contesting these decisions, we have an amazing union over here, United Sex Workers, who are doing a huge push to really change these policies and to work with individual sex workers who have been rejected from financial services. But these often take time and resources and the ability to be out as a sex worker, which many people don't have the luxury of doing. Sometimes people need to lie or be elusive on applications. Uh, sometimes this is enforced by banks. We have a story of one person who is a cisgender male sex worker who said that the bank refused to give him money because he was open about being a sex worker because they didn't believe him, essentially, and his application was rejected. Um, Sometimes people are able to accept payment in other forms, such as things like gift cards, but this is not sustainable. You can't pay your rent through an Amazon gift card. In other countries, sex workers have set up things like formal self-saving groups or cooperatives to support members in terms of financial hardship. But in the UK particularly, most financial support from other sex workers is done on a very informal basis through networks where people are just able to give and support their friends and their connections as best as they can. Right. And I mean, this informality, uh, you know, has there's, there's platforms like OnlyFans that have sprung up to support these communities. And like I, recently in the news, we saw that OnlyFans abandoned their their plan to ban sexually explicit material, which is their bread and butter. Um, you know, have moves like this led to mistrust in platforms that, like this that, that centralize a lot of these, these kinds of communities? Absolutely. I mean, sex workers have known for years that this discrimination happens. This is not a new thing. But what a lot of people are experiencing is the sheer power that some financial institutions have to remove everything from them in a matter of moments. The thing with OnlyFans particularly is that so many people had turned to OnlyFans during the pandemic to move away from in-person forms of sex work or to supplement mainstream jobs or to fill a gap in income where they may have lost their job or had to go on to a furlough scheme or something like that. And it was devastating for people when they thought that they were suddenly going to lose that form of income. In terms of losing things like online platforms where sex workers operate, if they're then forced to go out and work in person, that means taking increased risks, jeopardizing their safety, higher rates of violence, and again, higher levels of stigmatization. OnlyFans has something of a degree of social acceptability about it in a way that is different to sort of in-person forms of sex work, um, street work, escorting, any form of sort of in-person client contact sort of work. So this was not an unprecedented decision, but at the same time, it was still an incredibly shocking one because OnlyFans has kind of become synonymous with sex work in a way. And so breaking that divide or the potential of breaking that divide was shocking for people, I think. 
I'm I'm going to pause here. This is this is such a great conversation. So we're going to take a quick pause and and come back very shortly. Also, where we look to the future a little bit. Um, so be right back. Do you like no BS fintech opinions without all of the bells and whistles? Well, we've got the newsletter just for you. Unfiltered runs every two weeks and you can get it beamed straight into your inbox. Just head to 11fs.com forward slash newsletters. That's 11fs.com forward slash newsletters to sign up now. You don't want to miss out. Did you know that the majority of people are investing in cryptocurrency through a taxable account when they could be using an IRA, that's an individual retirement account, and avoiding or deferring those taxes? With Alto Crypto IRA, you can invest in crypto without tax headaches, creating a free account in only minutes. Choose from over 150 coins and invest with as little as $10. That's right, only 10 bucks. No setup charges and no account fees. To open an Alto Crypto IRA with as little as $10, $10, just go to altoira.com forward slash insider. That's A-L-T-O-I-R-A.com forward slash insider. Let's face it, cards were not designed for online. Payments can take days to settle, hurting customer loyalty, while high fraud, clunky checkouts and expensive fees means millions in missed revenue. At TrueLayer, we've made instant payments available for businesses across Europe and the UK. So you can cut costs, fight fraud, and get money moving faster. To learn more, visit truelayer.com forward slash payments. Okay, so let's move on from present day and look at uh, what what we hope might be possible in the future for underserved markets and, and, and communities. So if traditional banking has proved to be a barrier um, is decentralized finance the future? So, Rosie, I'm going to come to you. Like, are you seeing sex workers move into cryptocurrency? How, how is how crypto savvy are sex workers? Is, is the industry? So what we're starting to see in terms of cryptocurrency is something that we're starting to see with any form of digitization with sex work. There is a digital divide that exists amongst sex workers the same way it exists in society as a whole. And this was really brought to the forefront during the pandemic, where some people were able to move their businesses and their work online, and some people didn't necessarily have the resources to do that. So on the one hand, you've got sex workers who are technologically savvy, have strong internet access, a good understanding of the internet and digital markets and services, and and a degree of ability to take financial risk as well. And they've got the time and resources to understand and get started with things like crypto, and they're able to begin using it. And we are starting to see um, a huge increase in things like crypto when it comes to sex work. And sex workers particularly starting up sex worker-specific and sex worker-friendly forms of crypto. But at the same time, you have so many people who are being left behind. People who don't have a stable internet connection. They might not even have a stable home. People who are living paycheck to paycheck or in serious poverty. People who don't have internet access clearly. People who don't have the ability to take financial risks or understand crypto or have the time or resources to dedicate to understanding it. And they're the people who are being left behind. They're the people who are being much greater at risk from these sort of financial institutions putting forward these policies because there is no alternative for them other than traditional banking. Crypto is, it's got so much potential in terms of 
moving away from these stigmatizing and discriminatory regulations, but at the same time, it's only accessible for a very small number of people, particularly when it comes to sex work, because there are such huge overrepresentations in sex work of people who do fall into these sort of marginalized categories. People in poverty, people with disabilities, migrants, people who would traditionally struggle to access even the very basic sort of necessities that you need to live, let alone access something incredibly complex like crypto. So the barriers to cryptocurrency are huge. It's got so much potential, but at the same time, it's only at the moment ever going to be able to be used by such a small number of people working in sex work that it's only a viable alternative for a very privileged group of people, essentially. Absolutely. And we, we're still so early in, in crypto, you know, we're still... We're still st- Things are like even at 11 FS. We have a Slack channel, a couple of Slack channels dedicated to crypto, and the news that's coming out on a daily is is quite blinding. Another piece of news that we always see um, is there's a number number of digital currencies connected to the cannabis industry. So there's pot coin, cannabis coin, hemp coin. I'm sure, there's other ones that I, I probably haven't listed. But um, Mike, are you are you advising your clients to use cryptocurrency? Um, you know, is is this something that you've seen uh, a trend in the industry uh, of cannabis? Have are people starting to turn to crypto? We've seen a trend of white papers. Uh, I've not seen any form of mass adoption of cryptocurrency in the in the cannabis industry, though. Um, you know, I think the thesis is valid that you know it, a uh, industry that is uh, having difficulty accessing traditional centralized financial structures would turn to decentralized finance as a way to mitigate those um, those challenges. The problem is most transactions in the cannabis industry occur in person. So the you know, one of the greatest benefits of, of cryptocurrency is the electronic, remote, and oftentimes anonymous transaction layer that, that it affords. With cannabis, you need to be credentialed. So you need either a medical marijuana ID card or a valid state-issued ID in the case of uh, adult use. You are often physically in person. So the, the transaction, you know, P2P transactions in crypto is still a very, very infant um, technology. And um, there aren't a lot of uh, transactional systems that allow for that kind of you know high output, low latency transactions for for real time payments. But the last and and perhaps most obvious blocker is you still need fiat currency even to use crypto. You need to purchase or exchange crypto. You can't pay your taxes in crypto. You can't pay your suppliers in crypto. So unless you have this mass market adoption, that that critical mass that any system needs in order to be successful, I think it's still going to be a, a little ways before cannabis looks to crypto as a, a full solution. Yeah, it's like I guess almost needs a, a full ecosystem of a, everyone interacting within it uh, for it to to really work. Um, Rohit, I'm going to come to you about uh, what about uh, crypto for the communities that you work with. So. Um, you know, I, I'm currently based in Kenya, and there, there's all this, all these reports coming out about the remittance corridors, like uh, America to Nigeria, America to the Philippines, uh, various countries where remittances are being done he- like quite heavily, increasingly in crypto. The Mexican crypto exchange Bitso processes 2.5% of remittances going into Mexico, which is over one billion dollars a year. So, are migrants a growing market for cryptocurrency? Uh, yeah, totally. I, I think crypto is seeing more adoption in the developing world compared to the developed world uh, because of a variety of reasons, including inflation and, you know, easier, making it easier to move money around, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, the whole thing with uh, migrants is uh, 
as they move to the U.S., they, they want to build a new life. Uh, at least uh, on that front, crypto is not as helpful, but it's helpful to move money across countries. That's where it has found some use case. And even within that, there is some uh, material cost to on-ramp and off-ramp. Uh, so it, you, some, you have to convert, uh, you know, normal traditional currency to a cryptocurrency and that costs money. And then when you transfer it, you have to like convert crypto to uh, your local currency and that costs money, which means that it's still somewhat prohibitive, but it's, it's still better to use or it's still uh, crypto is being used more in corridors that see lower volumes of remittances or uh, the where the cost of transfer is too high because of whatever reason, the ability to just access money is high, right? But corridors like India, US to India are not seeing as much uh, crypto adoption. It's more to US to LATAM or US to Africa or within those uh, continents themselves. So um, uh, migrants use crypto. We see a lot of people, uh, a lot of our customers investing either through major cryptocurrency exchanges like Coinbase and others. Um, but we don't see as many people who at least are our customers uh, um, using crypto regularly because they still need um, an off-ramp to the traditional finance world because they want to build credit. They want to you know, have uh, access to uh, funds and be able to borrow at lower costs uh, in the future. Um, so crypto plays a, a small part in some areas, but not a, not a huge part right now. I think, yeah, the main story we're hearing is crypto is great, but not quite there yet. I mean, the the transparency of blockchain technology is really good. But um, Rohit, could you could a more transparent banking system, for example, like open banking, open the door to building credit scores? So, for example, like one of the things that has blocked a lot of uh, migrant communities uh, from accessing financial services, could open banking really be something that opens that door? So I, I know that still recently launched a credit as a service product that allows any business to build and offer a credit product without needing a bank sponsor in the background. So is is this something that our more transparent banking systems like open banking and credit as a service type platforms, is that something that's going to make a dent in, in underserved communities? Yeah, totally. And open banking itself has been, has proven fairly useful uh, already because normal credit evaluation happens only with data that's passed on to credit bureaus. And that credit bureau data is uh, mostly focused on credit. So migrants are stuck in a catch-22 situation of not having access to credit, which means that they can't get credit and they can't get credit reported to the bureaus uh, to lower their costs in the future. So uh, open banking just provides an alternative data source uh, for migrants or for companies to uh, underwrite uh, migrants. So if you don't have any credit history, you can underwrite them on bank transaction level data. Uh, some Y Combinator uh, companies, like even pulling data from different countries to uh, to underwrite migrants. So if I've moved from India to the US, like they are also uh, pulling my India credit score. Uh, and if it's valuable enough, like companies can underwrite using that data. So open banking is more than just like uh, traditional bank level transactions. It also means like porting credit histories throughout the, uh, throughout the world. Uh, what Stilt has launched on the B2B side um, in terms of credit as a service is is something I briefly touched upon uh, earlier is to reduce brain damage that companies need to do to launch a credit company. So we have built all the things that we built for Stilt uh, to 
power our infrastructure, we are providing that as an API to new companies. So we can have a 10x, 100x, 1000x impact on the financial world. So still doesn't have to actually acquire every migrant customer to offer them credit. If some other company, in this case, a remittance company has migrants coming to them where they're helping them uh, move money uh, between countries. Now that remittance company can actually offer a loan product to these migrants. In other cases, like there are farm workers in the U.S. who are undocumented, still itself cannot go and lend to all farm workers. But there are farmers who employ these farm workers can spin up a, a platform to provide access to credit uh, to these uh, farm workers. So uh, that's where credit as a service platform helps. So any company that is not even a fintech company can actually launch uh, credit products to serve their populations. And they can do it better because... Customers are not coming, going to them only for financial products. They are going to these. They are working with these companies, or employed by these companies, or have a different type of relationship with these companies. Which means these companies can provide credit at a materially lower cost because of their relationship with the migrant community, and that's what that's where credit as a service uh, helps. Okay. Um, thank you for explaining that. So I think you, you've done a great job. Credit as a service sounds like a really exciting future. Uh, or I guess like present that's going to change the future of for 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 the serv- the community that you're serving, um, Rosie and Mike. I'm going to come to you just a quick fire. Is there can you get, can you give us one thing you're you're really hopeful about, um, or or a piece of advice you have for um, fintechs and startups trying to support the industries that that that, that you work with? So we'll start with you, Rosie. Sure. And um, I mean, my advice for any fintech startup who would want to support underserved industries and particularly for sex workers is. Think accessibility, value accessibility, prioritize accessibility, and make that accessibility for everyone. Consult with marginalized groups throughout your process. Keep them as part of your organization. Value their contributions. Pay for their time. And really focus and center what you do and build up from what it is that they need. It's not an afterthought. It has to be centralized. Absolutely. That's central to product thinking as well. Mike, what about you? Uh, so my advice would be, um, you know, follow a, a two-step recipe. First, figure out the regulatory hurdles you need to overcome and overcome them. And then focus on the underserved niche that you're you're looking to serve. Likely they have specific needs, specific ideals, specific accessibility issues, as, as Rosie mentioned. Um, so once you can overcome those regulatory hurdles, you can then focus all of your energy, all of your resources on delivering solutions that are right for the industries that you're looking to serve. That's great, Rohit. I'll, I'll come to you as well. Like, aside from partnering with with Stilt, uh, what what advice do you have for fintech startups looking to get into supporting underserved industries? I think one of the more important things these companies need to do is like figure out how they are going to acquire customers. How are they going to reach the underserved market? Because the financial world is extremely noisy. Consumers just trust financial companies less. They Financial companies usually have the lowest NPS scores because of service or some other reason. So uh, it's even though we may be trying to do uh, the right thing for the consumers, there are a lot of companies who are trying to take advantage of these marginalized groups. So it's extremely important to figure out ways to reach to these customers and build trust with them. In addition to what Mike and Rosie said around, um, you know, figuring out the regulatory framework, like that's table stakes. You can't actually build a company without that. And uh, also uh, without, uh, you, you won't be able to build a good product without 
including these uh, folks in the in the process. Uh, but yeah, um, figure out how you're going to acquire these customers and going to build trust with them. That's going to be extremely important in building a successful company. That's a great note to, to wrap on. So th- that wraps our discussion today. Uh, so thank you so much for joining me, the three of you. Um, where can people find out more about you and your companies? Um, I'll start. We're at greencheckverified.com. Um, Rosie, how about for you? Sure. You can find us at nationaluglymugs.org. Um, and you can also find us on Twitter at nationaluglymug. Uh, you can find Stilt at stilt.com. That's S-T-I-L-T.com. And for our credit as a service product, you can find us at onbo.com, O-N-B-O.com. And you can find me at 11fs.com or on Twitter at notguera. Thanks for listening. If you like what you've heard, please do subscribe to our podcast and do not forget to leave us a review. It helps us make the show better and helps other people find the show as well. As always, uh, if you want to join in on the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11fs or Fintech Insider or you can email our our team at podcasts at 11fs.com. Thank you and goodbye.